Alright guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna open us up in some prayer just real quick. Um, God, thank you so much for orchestrating tonight and getting all of us together. Uh, this community is very special and I thank you for everyone that showed up tonight and everyone that uh, just pours into one another. I pray that you would speak tonight through worship, through the message, through fellowship, and that we would grow closer to you tonight, whatever that looks like, God. pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, as you can probably notice, today's a little different. Um, normally we'll do a sermon for those of you who normally come, um, but today's going to be a little bit different. We're going to start a new series on uh, core principles of Christianity, of things that if we call ourselves Christians, we want to hold with a tight grip. We want to say, I'm not moving from these belief systems. And we want to start off today of uh, kind of a foundation to the rest of the core things we're going to talk about. Um, and today we want to talk for uh, the idea of God existing at all, whether you believe in the Christian God or not. We just want to talk about the the philosophical, the scientific, the historical backing of is God real? Are, are there actual intellectuals in college classrooms or other people who have thought this through and have actually come to conclusions that God could be real or he is in fact real? And so we want to, we're going to kind of do this more of a forum where we're going to show different arguments and we're going to try and simplify them because some of them can be like 40 pages and they say one thing. Um, but we want to try and simplify it to just show us that if we believe in God, there's actually warrant for it. We, you don't have to feel like an idiot for believing it because there's people way smarter than any of us that spend their entire lives. And they're like, yeah, there, there probably is a God. And some of them don't even actually believe in our God, but they believe that God could exist. And so we want to show different backgrounds. We're going to walk through a couple key points. And after each key point... Uh, we want to kind of summarize it, and then we're going to ask you guys if anyone has any clarifying questions. This will be a time just, hey, I, I missed what you said, or could you clarify this statement? And then at the end of it, if you have any disagreements with maybe some of the things we're saying, we want to have an open forum opportunity out here probably um, where uh, Mr. Black and Dale and myself will be available to answer any questions or objections or anything to clarify what we've talked about. So feel free to speak up when we ask for uh, clarification, and then we're just going to jump into it. So, Dale, you want to get us started with um, yeah, um, our first major philosophical approach to why God might exist? Yeah, so we're going to go through, I think, three arguments that I think they're very helpful, at least for me. I lean towards, I have a physics background, I lean towards the intellectual relationship with God, and so I've, I've really loved and attached to a lot of these arguments to help ground a lot of my faith. And so we're going to go through three different arguments. The first one's the Kalam cosmological argument, and that is just an argument that helps to, I think in a very succinct and rigorous way, show that there's very good reasons to believe in a creator God. And then another argument we're going to go through is the moral argument, which helps to show that there's very good reasons to believe in not just a creator God, but a good God who is moral. And then the last thing we're going to touch on is the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
which helps to tie in why we, some of us, would believe in the God of the Bible and Jesus specifically. And so um, I was actually talking with my dad a little. Would you mind sharing what you shared earlier if you think it'll fit? Because I, I thought yeah. it would be really helpful to frame this first discussion. Yeah, so, you know, one of the purposes is we want to understand why we can have confidence in the Bible, in everything, but, you know, specifically we're talking about uh, science and history. And so if you, let's start with Genesis 1. The Bible is the only religious text that says that the universe had a beginning. And not only did it have a beginning, it was created out of nothing. So that's what uh, Genesis tells us very clearly. And if you look at what science has told us up until the 20th century, the science said that uh, the universe was infinite. It was eternal. It has always existed. So, you know, if you're a Christian up until, you know, 1950s or so, you know, they would say that your belief is really a fairy tale, right? And as science has progressed and we've learned more, you know, they came up with the uh, Big Bang Theory. And that theory has an enormous amount of scientific evidence behind it over the last, uh, you know, many decades. And what that shows is the universe did actually have a beginning, right? Everything began in a moment in time. It's called the singularity. And atheists hate the Big Bang Theory. And they really hate it. Because if it had a beginning, it had a beginning. Right? And cosmologists have uh, developed theorems that, in their mind, prove that it had a beginning. And these cosmologists are actually atheists. And Dale's going to talk about them a little bit. And so what they're saying is, look, fellow atheists, we can no longer uh, count on an eternal, infinite universe. We have to admit it had a beginning. They say about 13.7 billion years ago. So, if you think about it, right from the beginning, Genesis 1, you know, the Bible, it makes two radical claims and they're both true. Um, so that's, you know, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, personally, it gives me a lot of confidence that the Bible is true. And there's many other areas in the Bible where um, discoveries like that are proving it to be true. You know, the whole evolution creation uh, debate is another one. We don't have time to go into that tonight. Thank you. Um, so one thing before we get started as well is um, as we're going through these, not only in this uh, in tip for today, but in future months, what we want to distinguish is that um, when arguments get brought up, it is very uh, frequent that people will get very hard in their stance in their argument. They'll stick to the argument and sometimes even forget about the belief. That's the reason for the argument. So one thing we want to just clarify is that we're holding the belief in God with a closed hand. We, we believe, it means that we believe this firmly, and that is something that is core to our belief system. But these arguments that we believe that we're going to bring up are not. These arguments are just things that support this belief system, and they could change at any given point in time. Philosophers and scientists and historians are constantly evolving this discussion, and so we don't want to say we're stuck to this argument. We want to say if there is further evidence... We want to talk about that. But the belief in God is something that we hold dear and we hold close because it's fundamental to our belief system. So I wanted to make that distinguishment. 
Second thing before you get started with the Kalam, if you're taking notes, Kalam is spelled K-A-L-A-M. Thank you. Yeah. There you go. Cool. Yeah, so it's a really simple argument, and it's called a deductive argument. So if the first two premise, premises are true, the conclusion has to follow. And so it just goes like this. It says, everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And so the way to attack this argument is to disprove either the first or the second premise. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. That's kind of hard to attack. That's pretty straightforward. If, if that's not true, why don't things always just pop into being from nothing? That's kind of a, an assertion that we can make. And if there's disagreements or if people have questions about that, we can dive into that later. But typically the second premise is the one that's attacked. The universe began to exist. And so like my dad was saying, the Big Bang Theory, there's a substantial amount of evidence that points to the fact that the universe began to exist. And there's, I would say most of this evidence came from people like Einstein, Stephen Hawking, Hubble, people that were not theists. And they actually, Einstein openly hated what his uh, expansion of the universe meant. And so he fudged some stuff in his formulations because he really didn't like that and he turned, turned out he was wrong. It really was expanding. And so one scientific reason to believe the universe began to exist is the fact that we have evidence that the universe is at a state of constant expansion. And so very simply, there's much more rigorous um, physics behind this. Stephen Hawking, who I'm sure some of you have heard of, he got really famous because he developed the theory of the singularity based on this idea that the universe was expanding or is expanding. So at some point, if we reverse it, there was this time where the universe shrunk down to zero. And so you get into things like quantum gravity and stuff that I don't understand, and, but there are people that do. But very simply, we can, we can look at the um, physics that we do understand and it makes sense that we see this red shift or the Hubble, Hubble law that uh, he calls it. We know the universe is expanding, so if we, reverse, if we reverse it back in time, there's a singularity, and before that, there's no space, there's no time, there's nothing. And so that does a pretty good job at proving the universe began to exist, but there's people that have taken it um, a step further, and like my dad said, these, these guys are actually all atheists, and they really struggle with the fact that they came up with a theorem back in 2003 that proves any universe at a state of constant expansion had to have a beginning. Even if you get into the multiverse, even if you get into these uh, bubble universes that some cosmologists have proposed where it expands and detracts and expands and detracts. And so we'll, we'll kind of go through these things at a really high level because that's probably the only way we understand these things. We don't really know them at a super technical level. But afterwards, like we've been saying, there are people that have spent their lives diving into this stuff from physicists and philosophers and stuff like that. And so that's just one scientific example of why we have good reason to believe that the universe began to exist. And then in conjunction with everything that begins to exist has a cause. Therefore, the universe 
probably has a cause based on what science tells us. Just to sum that up real quick, in case you're not following, there's a lot of different theories you kind of went over, like multiverse and Marvel, where there's different universes and the same person, but they're playing different roles. Another way to view this is like, if the universe is a movie and it's playing throughout time, if you reverse that movie long enough, you're before the movie starts, which means that there was a starting point to that movie. So that's kind of like the explanation that's going on, and that's what these scientists have proven with the universe, is that if, if it's expanding, then that means you could play it in reverse to a point of before it even started. And then also, theist, I don't know if everybody knows what that means, but theist just means someone who believes in God. It doesn't have a particular God, you just believe that a God exists. So, just to clarify those points. Yeah, thank you. And then, we wanted to add another philosophical argument. There's so many more scientific arguments for this, and there's going to be plenty more philosophical arguments, but we don't have time. But I think one of the best philosophical reasons to believe that the universe isn't past eternal, so it isn't infinite in time, is the absurdity of infinity itself. Infinity is a really use, useful mathematical tool, but mathematicians understand that infinity has a bunch of caveats. For example, you can't add and subtract infinity like you can regular numbers because infinity doesn't really exist. There isn't a real infinity that we can point to. And so one of the, for me, kind of mathematically oriented, I think this is a good example, but maybe Pap will go into the hotel example and that might be better. But if you, if you take a set of numbers, any, the whole set of positive numbers, that's an infinite set of numbers. If you take from that infinite set of numbers all the even numbers, that's another infinite set of numbers. And if you subtract those two things, you get infinity minus infinity equals infinity. And then you can do that again. You can take that same set of positive numbers. You can subtract all of the numbers from that set greater than three. That, again, is another set of infinite numbers. You get infinity minus infinity now equals three. And so in math, you actually, you can't operate with infinity like you can with regular numbers in the same way like matrices, you can't, you have specific rules. And so this is a quote from a, again, an agnostic, not a Christian, not a believer in God at all, and probably the greatest mathematician of the 21st century. He says, our principal result is that the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. And so if, if real infinite things don't exist, then the universe cannot have an infinite series of events. And so the universe, philosophically, even if science didn't tell us anything, we would have really good reason to believe logically that the universe isn't past eternal. It isn't infinite. So, everybody tracking? <laughs> a lot of infinities, right? Um, one of the examples William Layton Craig gives to kind of paint a picture is imagine a hotel with infinite number of rooms, right? So you have infinity amount of rooms and they're all full. Well, you have a full set of infinity. Now once you subtract, or you, someone leaves the hotel, there's one less person in the hotel but there's still an infinite amount of rooms. The thing is, is if you take, you take the first three rooms and you delete or you subtract the first or the, everything after the first three, that since it goes into infinity, it's still an infinite number. Like technically, if you're gonna write on paper, it still equals the infinity sign. 
But if you subtract that infinity, you're left with rooms one, two, and three. So somehow, infinity minus infinity actually equals a solid number. But that contradicts math, where if you add or subtract infinity, it should just equal infinity. So there's, there's this contradiction that's inherent, and that's a simplified way to show it, um, that it doesn't necessarily work the same in reality with physical objects as it would in just a math problem. Yeah, and so if it's confusing, that's because infinity doesn't actually exist. And that's part of the point, is that it's confusing. <laughs> so and it doesn't really make sense. The argument is actually called the absurdity of infinity, of an actual infinity. And so, to kind of recap, those are, we just gave two, a scientific and a philosophical argument, and if you're like me, like, probably right away you'll start thinking of, well, what about this and what about that, and there's really good counter-arguments and I think even better answers to those counterarguments from, again, smarter people than us. Real quick, does anyone have any questions to, of clarification so far? Because I know that's a lot. Any clarification questions? Or things they want to chime in on? No? All right. Um, and then, so just some counter. Oh, Zeke, what do you got? Were you raising your hand or are you just saying hi? <laughs> Just hang out. Cool. Um, yeah, so a counter-argument that is sometimes thrown out there is it relates to the first premise. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. If anyone's familiar with quantum physics, you might have heard the saying that in quantum physics, nothing or something pops into existence from nothing often because particles pop into existence from what's called the quantum vacuum. And so that at face value might be a good counter argument to the first premise, but this is a uh, quote from, again, another um, atheist who is a cosmologist who understands quantum physics really well, and he, he explains, a vacuum is ordinarily thought of as empty space, but according to modern particle phys physics, what is empty is not nothing. The vacuum is a physical object endowed with energy, density, and pressure, and he goes on from there. And so, again, we're, we're just going to breeze through these to hopefully finish before two hours from now. <laughs> but A lot sooner, hopefully. Yeah. The idea that things pop into existence and that quantum physics has shown that is a fabrication of what quantum physics is saying. And so, no one... That, that itself, I don't think, is a very good counter-argument. And, and the point to this is if someone brings up... It, like, let's say you're talking to someone about God and they bring up quantum physics... You don't have to be like, oh, like that's a big word. I don't know anything about it. They must be right. They actually might not actually understand that because very few people in the world understand quantum physics. So the, the reason we're bringing this up is just because someone brings up something as complicated as quantum physics doesn't mean they're right. You can have confidence that my belief is still grounded in very smart arguments that I might not understand and they might not understand. But we want this to be like a sense of confidence if you just believe in God in general, that's where we're at right now. No matter if you believe in the Christian God or something else, if you believe in God, there is warrant for that in just arguments alone. Mm -hmm. Can you clarify how the uh, there's no affinity is an argument for God? Have you gotten there yet? Yeah, yeah. So we, we just talked about how the absurdity of infinity, there isn't a good logical way to explain how a real infinity would exist helps to show, not necessarily the whole, but it helps to show that the universe therefore can't be past eternal. It can't be infinite in time, because that would be a real series of events occurring in infinite time. 
And, and in particular, the argument will be that the universe is beginningless. And that's the, the key there, because a lot of the argument of God's existence is based on the fact that the universe started at one point. So that's why we keep going back to this idea of how long the universe was and, and tying it in with God. So it just uh, there is transversal causes and longitudinal causes in mind. So with that being said, the transversal causes, imagine a plant needs water, needs a gardener who uh, water the plant, the soil, or these are transversal causes. Mm -hmm. But if you go backward one step, there should be somebody who create those waters, mm -hmm. those gardeners. So step by step, if you go backward, there should be a reason, a cause for each of these uh, steps. Mm -hmm. So when you go to the primitive, the first step, there should be a reason over there. And that's God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all backtracking all no, the way. Yeah, that's yeah. really good. Basically, in case you guys didn't hear in the back, if you're going to like water a plant, each cause in that process of watering the plant should have a cause. If you go back to the very beginning of that process of even just putting water in the bucket, there would be something that caused it. And the same is with the universe. There has to be something that caused it if there are causes. If causes exist in general, then there must be something that started those causes. Um, one, one last kind of philosophical counter-argument that might come to mind is we just talked about how real infinities, actual infinities don't exist. And if you're thinking critically, you might start to question, okay, we are at least claiming, not, not everyone here is going to be a Christian or have the same set of beliefs, but we're at least claiming to believe in the Christian God, who in many ways we would describe as infinite. And so if we're just now making the statement that actual infinities don't exist, what does that then say about the God that you're claiming to believe in that is often by theologians referred to as this infinite being? And that was actually a burning question in my mind for years now. And I've just been too lazy to kind of look up, okay, where does, how does this fit? And in preparing for this, I figured now's a good time. And what I realized is like in two minutes, someone like William Lane Craig could just make it so clear. And so for, for me, this was clear. He explained that when we talk about the infinitude of God, the infinite nature of God, there's nothing actual about God that we're claiming is infinite. God isn't an infinite number of particles, for example. God is actually timeless. He's, he's not an infinite series of events. He's actually the creator of time itself. And so when we talk about omniscience, omnipotence, his timeless nature, all these things, a good way to think about that is infinity, but that's not claiming that there's an actual aspect of God that's infinite. It's more so similar to how we use infinity in math. It's a concept that helps us, it, it's vital for math actually. And I think infinity is a concept that we apply to God to help us talk about him, but there is no actual infinite about God. And so for me, that actually helped clarify a burning question. Um, and I guess just to conclude what we just talked about. So whatever caused, the, the reason this is so important is it doesn't actually say anything about God in this argument. 
but it's pretty clear to see that whatever caused this universe to exist is a lot like the God that we're talking about. This, this cause is immaterial, it's timeless, it has a will to actually do and cause things, so it's not just something that's existed, it can actually cause and create, and it's obviously very powerful. And so, if we can prove that this, this argument is valid and sound, then we get to this inference where we go, okay, well, whatever caused this universe looks a lot like the Christian God, looks a lot like the monotheistic God of um, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And so that's why atheists argue so vehemently against this argument is because it's clearly inferable towards the a theistic God, a monotheistic God, for example. Um, this has been debated and argued against for rigorously for the past like 50 years ever since it got brought back into the spotlight and to me it's a really really sound argument I love the like way it builds my faith because I lack a lot of the experiential side of God and so I lean heavily on the logic and so hopefully this is something where if you've never heard of the Kalam cosmological argument, it helps to either make you question what you think when it comes to atheism, ag agnosticism, and that sort of stuff, or it helps to give you some idea of grounding your faith on very reasonable and logical principles. Yeah, and part of the reason we're doing this is a lot of times Christians try to argue from the Bible. There's a place for that, but if someone doesn't agree with the Bible, you can't argue from there. You're not starting on common ground. But what we can start on with common ground for the most part, not with everybody, but most individuals will agree with logic. That They'll at least understand the rules of logic, and so we can start an argument from there. And what's really awesome is two guys, so if you're taking notes or you want to look into this further, two guys that really um, help build the side that um, for the argument that God exists are... Alvin Plantinga and William Lane Craig. Um, over the last probably 80 years now, these two guys have actually created a space in the philosophical conversation where big names from big schools have to admit, okay, they're not illogical. They, they actually have something going for them in these arguments. And so that's a place that we can talk from. Um, and, and so that's just one of the, the perspectives we want to come from. And there's many other guys. Those are just two that we've pulled a lot from. Yeah, so that hopefully helps to give some reason to establish a creator God. And so the next, and again, we'll have time for anyone that is interested. We're not going to assume most people are interested in this stuff because probably not. But for anyone that is interested, I love talking about this stuff. My dad does too. And so if there's like things you want to throw at it or dive into it more, we'll talk after. Um, but the next argument we want to go towards is the moral argument. And... I'll just lay out the formulation real briefly, and yeah. then you can kind of explain some of the ideas. Yeah. So the argument, again, is the same sort of structure. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. But objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. And so PATH can kind of start to explain what objective moral values are, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so um, this, this one's particularly interesting because of our culture that says morals or truth is relative, right? 
that's been going on for decades now, that this idea that truth is relative is actually just common sense. But the thing is, is that there's, let me, let me back up a second and just establish what objectivity is because it seems like not everybody knows and it's really important that we get this down. Objectivity is when something is true regardless of whether or not we know it or we believe it. So um, principles, physics, they are true even if you don't understand them. There are many things in this world when it comes to morality, um, uh, science, uh, philosophy, all of these different subjects that are going to be true whether or not we understand them. So what we want to talk about are what are some of those things that are true um, regardless of whether or not we believe them or we've experienced them yet. And one of them, we, we'd say that there's a great argument that morality is objective, that there is a set of rules that the universe functions by and society functions by because this is an example C.S. Lewis gives. And if you want to read more into this, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is great. He, he walks through a very simple argument for this. But he says, suppose someone comes up to you and like steals your wallet. The first reaction most people would have is saying, that's not right or that's not fair. Well, what you're doing in that situation is you're invoking a judge. You're saying that there is a standard that we both know about. And this is violating that standard. And so what in fact is happening is we're appealing to a law. And if there is a law that is underneath society as a whole, then we're also saying that there is an objective moral lawgiver that uh, backs and institutes that law. Because if a law doesn't have backing, then it doesn't really exist. There's nothing to enforce it, then it doesn't matter. It's not real. And so this idea that intrinsically we know that there are things that are just not right. Like, for instance, most people, I'm not going to say everybody because, unfortunately, there's people that would disagree with this, but, like, during the Holocaust, we know that exterminating Jews, exterminating people with disabilities, exterminating the elderly, that's wrong. But what some people would say is that morality isn't objective. It's subjective to individuality. It's whatever you feel is best. So then if you view murdering someone as the best thing for you that makes you happy, well, then that's right. But I think intrinsically, most of us here, if not all of us, would agree that that's wrong. We might not be able to explain it, but we know internally for some reason. Another um, way they say that morality is subjective is in terms of a collective morality. It's altruism. Whatever is best for everybody, or an evolutionary standpoint, whatever is best for our species to evolve is the moral thing. However, things like exterminating people with disabilities or the elderly or those we don't like is not necessarily evolutionarily, um, or that would be evolutionarily beneficial because you would diminish the resources that you're allocating to people that can't help society. So you should. You should kill all of them according to that set of morality. And that's sad. And we know internally that's wrong. Some of us, that might make us cry. We might have an emotional reaction that is deeper than something we can explain. And that's the appeal to objective morality is that most people on planet Earth would say there's something true in that statement. And that's what we're appealing to. We're appealing to a truth that we can all agree on and even though we haven't talked to each other. Um, so... Is there anything else that you want to add to that? 
not not to that I, I would I, I, I guess yeah so with that also there are people that especially atheists that are more of the academic where they understand that this is a hard thing to justify outside of a creator god that can be the judge for example there are atheists that would throw this aside and say no you're right moral values aren't real that's just something in us that we think is real but it's not and even that i think one i think our experience is strong enough to go well based on our experience we know that's not true and kind of just throw that aside but also we can just look at the lives of these atheists that would claim this and realize they're inconsistent they say this based on whatever logic they have and they live a life completely inconsistent of this and one of my favorite examples of this is richard dawkins and if i probably the most famous atheist outspoken atheist and he would claim that moral values are based in our evolutionary um our evolutionary like tree and it's genetic and all that stuff so essentially it's subjective if we evolved differently moral values would have evolved differently and all of us have different genes and so therefore we all have moral values that are going to be slightly different so He's essentially saying this is subjective and he's admitting that that's, there is no objective moral value um, giver. But then at the same time, being one of the most famous atheists, and like we've already mentioned, William Lane Craig, probably the most famous Christian apologist and a world-class debater. He's debated over 400 times against Sam Harris and just brilliant, brilliant atheists that have taken the challenge of debating him. Richard Dawkins has denied any debate against him on the basis of moral grounds because he thinks William Lane Craig is immoral on what he does with the Old Testament and the Bible and how genocide and all this sort of stuff, which to me I just find very comforting and even the atheists and the, the academic type that would claim, oh it's all subjective, they always fall back on there is some moral values that are objective and it has to apply and that I thought was a great example of that um, yeah so any clarifying questions anything like that I think one of the ones that's interesting when uh, somebody like Richard Dawkins brings up evolutionary and why it's the herd instinct as to why if you believe in evolution and you believe the herd instinct has been uh, produced in our genes genetically through evolution then when somebody does something horribly wrong, they shouldn't be able, they shouldn't be held accountable for that. A pedophile rapes mm -hmm. a kid, a murderer kills people, then that's their evolutionary process, and therefore that's a chemical reaction in their brain, and either they should be deleted from our species so they can no longer evolve with us, or they shouldn't be held accountable because it's not their fault. Yeah, and then the second thing is with. Um, with uh, mere Christianity, he brings up uh, the, the person drowning in a well. And so you see somebody fall in a well and they're drowning and you want to go in there and save them. But then you, because that's what they would call herd instinct, right? We've been programmed to have a herd instinct to save our own kind. But then you have the, the self-preservation instinct. But you have to decide and you decide the moral thing is to choose to save the person. Well, now you've taken those two choices and you've admitted that there's something higher than that to make that choice. And that's 
just choosing, or that, or that's proving objective morality, that there's something above that that tells you which objective morality, or not objective, but which morality to choose. Yeah, that's those true. Are interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. That's a good book. Yeah. Yeah. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Yeah. It's super easy to read, and he, it, it's amazing how he just lays things out. So even if you disagree with him, it, he makes it very clear where you can disagree with him. And if you agree, it's like, oh, wow, I've never thought of it like that. Um, so you had a statement? Yeah. Um, Question? So what's the connection between um, there having to be like, you know, morality and most of us understanding that? Um, what's the connection between that and pointing to a higher power? Like, I understand the concept, but like why why does it mean that there has to be something bigger? Is it like, because we would, it would be too hard for us to determine that, or? You wanna go for it? Yeah, so the way that this kind of makes sense to me is you need something, if you think of just right and wrong, because that's what we're talking about when we say morality, if there's a right and a wrong, you have to have some gauge for why that's right and wrong. And so that gauge has to be outside of just our own subjective opinion. There has to be what C.S. Lewis would call the lawgiver. And so you can think of it in that way, but I like to think of it in terms of like a compass. And so on earth, a compass works. You have a true north and a true south. And if you actually step off of earth, that compass is useless. And so you need that objective true north and true south that has to be outside of um, your like subjective environment. And so this, if we start to try and base morals in anything other than an objective creator God, you get a lot of really tough um, contradictions. And so you have people like Dawkins who try and base it in evolution. You have people that try and say it's the herd mentality and that sort of stuff. Uh, Sam Harris does a really not good job, I don't think, but he, he spends a lot of time trying to come up with an idea of objective moral values that aren't based in a God. And I, there's, I see no good explanation of how you could have those outside of a God that's above all and therefore can actually determine the right and the wrong. Hopefully that helps a little. Yeah, and to use the compass uh, example, if if there were no true north and south, and true north and south were just wherever you stepped, the compass would be useless. Mm -hmm. And that's like relative morality. Wherever you step, you determine that that's the right step. Well, that doesn't really help you get anywhere. It doesn't give you metrics by which to judge yourself to something else. And it doesn't allow someone else to find you, because you're like, oh, I'm north. Well, my north is different than your north. Now you guys can't find each other. So it's kind of useless, right? And so I think that's kind of the example behind the compass. Um, mm -hmm. So thank you for that. And so in that analogy, God is the magnetic field. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't work unless you have the magnetic field, which is Yeah. So I guess to conclude this, our experience, we, we pretty much all agree that there is this objective morality. Whether or not we understand how that then points to God, I think is harder. Because for me, I don't know if I understand that. It's more so I've seen enough atheists try and come up with other ideas and get smacked from like Christian apologists. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess. Um, but I, I wanna kinda acknowledge that we're saying there's an objective morality, there is a true right and wrong. And yet I don't think any of us have a perfect 
gauge on that right and wrong. So for example, I think if we all had compasses, we all have slightly faulty com compasses, but that in the same way that we now understand gravity and we understand the formulation of gravity way better than we did in the 1500s, doesn't change anything about how gravity operated. I think that's the same way to think about objective morality, that we're all faulty and that we might actually, there's arguments to be made that we're actually progressing as a uh, race and we're getting a better understanding of objective moral values. Some people would disagree with that, but whatever. That because we're all faulty and we don't have a perfect gauge doesn't mean there isn't this uh, perfect barometer. I think it actually points to the fact that there is something that we're aiming towards and trying to progress to. Um, and I think with that, it's another reason to have grace when we're talking about like sin and we're talking about going the wrong way or I disagree with you. Even our perception of our own beliefs is not going to be perfect. And so there's an element of grace when we're talking about these things. Of like, you disagree with me, I disagree with you. We don't know the perfect answer, but we both can agree that maybe this general direction is the way to go. And talk and in a mutually beneficial and a kind manner about these things and know where we hold our ground, which for us as Christians is that God exists. Like today, that's the argument, that God exists. I'm going to hold that ground. But other areas, I want to I want to charitably walk in that conversation with you, um, so that we're not staunch and being like, "Oh, God exists, and so you're wrong because you disagree with me, and now we can't talk." Like that's that's not what Christ said, as we're going to kind of walk into. Um, but I just think that also shows that there's room for grace in the conversation. Yeah. So hopefully that's a good enough conclusion, just to remind the formulation of the article or the um, argument is really simple. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Hard to explain why that would be the case, but I, I would say the best way is try and come up with a way to explain objective moral values outside of God and also look at atheists try and come up with that. Really hard. Number two, objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. Um, so yeah, that concludes that argument. Any questions any responses to that and then we'll jump into the last one and wrap it up yeah i have a question after after you're done. um i guess um has it, has, is there any argument or thought process around like um for for those who believe that concept um because we like our instincts you know kind of guide us with values like if we're believing that, oh yeah, most of us know like right what's right and wrong. And if God is the lawgiver and the maker of those laws, is that an argument for like, then we all must have some sort of God in us or? So that's exactly what William Lane Craig, Craig would argue. And one of the things that's interesting is when he throws out this argument against atheists, they often combat okay, well then how do you explain all these atheists that do really good things? Because there's a lot of atheists that do more good than Christians. And William Lane Craig goes to that. He says, well, my explanation is we're all made in the image of God. And so there are things that atheists can do outside of the belief in God that are good things. And there's often a, a drive for them to want to do that because they're made in his image. And so that's exactly what he would point to. What verse is it that says the law of God is 
I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm close I'm to the rest of the Bible. Yeah. I'm like this close to the whole Bible. That's the one Somewhere verse. Somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's something along the lines of the, the law of God is written in every person's heart. Be, I mean, so that's the way that you can be held accountable, even if you haven't necessarily heard. You know, Romans 2.15, so they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, it continues, but it's kind of cut off. But you have a point. Romans 2.15, if you need a reference. Jeremiah 31, 31-34 also. And then, Connor, did you have something you were going to share? Yeah. Um, so this is a question that I get a lot, is if there is an objective moral right and wrong, the Bible also says that every single person is born a sinner um, that is, like, evil, and so why would God create right and wrong and then create us mm-hmm. continually like living in sin and falling short and all these like bad things happening apart from our own sinful nature? Yeah, then just to add on to that, I think that's maybe the toughest question as a Christian. And it's kind of just the idea of we believe this loving God that's in control of everything, that created everything, and yet also created a world with so much sin and is going to send a bunch of sinners to hell. How in the world do we reconcile this perfectly loving God? And so I think that's an aspect of that huge question. Um, Sarah was going to say something. Were you raising your hand? Oh, we're just reading in First Timothy and talk about If there, if there was no law, would there be no hell then that people are, are no, sent to? No, because not necessarily if God created heaven and hell. If he didn't give us the law and he didn't give us these moral you know, objectivities and know that there is a right and wrong, then we could just be going to hell and everyone know it. So like having these is actually going to talk about a gift to us that we have the law and that the law is written on our hearts so that we know that we need Jesus. Yeah, so... I would say to avoid diving into this right now, but again, this is something I'm super down to talk about after. I think this is one of the biggest reasons I'm not a Calvinist, is how do you explain this without free will? This idea of true free will that it's not God who made us sin. We were born with this like brokenness. There's this generational brokenness in us that gives us this proclivity to sin, but yet we all choose to sin. And so I freely choose to sin, and that's why I'm not a five-point Calvinist. Calvinist means that you (laughs) believe in determinism. It's a section of Christian belief um, that there's like three main beliefs on this idea of free will and determinism. But Calvinism is like a staunch belief system of everything we do is determined to some degree. Like there's, it's a spectrum, but it essentially says that all of our actions and our salvation is predetermined before we're even born. But that's an example of an open-handed stance where you can be a Calvinist, you can be Arminius, you can be a Molinist, you can be any, and you're still welcome in the family of Christ. But for reasons like that, I do think it's helpful to at least wrestle through, is there a true free will that God gave us that allowed us to disobey him and sin? 
and actually deserve hell. If not, I struggle with that idea of God creating me to be a sinner and almost forcing my hand by determining that I'm going to sin and then punishing me for that thing that he predetermined I'm going to do. And so we can dive more into that because then I think to really understand that you have to dive into Molinism and Yeah, it's basically like, why would a good God create all this bad stuff? And uh, the Bible talks about everyone being born. So he gives us this knowledge of right and wrong, and then also born into sin. How does that seem good? This is the question. And, and the one answer response is free will. There is true free will that would explain us choosing to sin. Yeah, and and we don't want to gloss over this because it it's actually one of the biggest um, like moral implications of why God may or may not exist. But we wanted to plan that around a com- more conversation, so those that aren't really interested can hang out. But I think that that conversation in particular is much more a conversation than a lecture to be heard. There's a lot of deep hurt and emotion that can go into that because it's it's more experiential in a, in a certain degree. So we want to have a conversation about that afterwards. We don't want to just gloss over it, but that is one of the main arguments in favor of God existing and there still being evil, is that God could exist and there could be evil if there is free will. And there are very good arguments for that. So, um, Okay, so to summarize what we've just gone through, the Kalam argument I think helps to Sarah. We'll wrap it up real quick then. Do you want to just say the, the history is so critical? We're going, we're doubling down on that uh, next week. Okay, or next I month. Make sure you weren't going to do that and just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. no it's, it's a big part of next month as well, but in a more specific category. Okay. Um, so, yeah. I thought you were going to do it now. No, well, you, good, good. Both. Yeah, Man. good check though. Um, okay. <laughs> so, to kind of summarize where we've gone. So, Kalam argument. Helps to argue for a creator God. Moral argument helps to argue for a good creator God. And then the historical evidence for the resurrection helps to really bolster the argument for Jesus as God and therefore the Christian God. And just real briefly touching on the points, these are points that unanimously every Christian or atheist historian agrees on. And so one is after his crucifixion, crucifixion Jesus was buried in a tomb on the Sunday following the crucifixion Jesus tomb was uh, empty and found by his Roman followers on multiple occasions Jesus appeared to his disciples and then the original disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite having every reason not to believe that and so next month we can dive into more of the implications around that how these disciples ended up dying for their beliefs and all of the ways in which a, a brother of Jane or a brother of Jesus went from not believing to believing, and what are some of the hypotheses around explaining these facts? That again, unanimous agreement on these facts. It's not like this is Christian historian versus atheist. Everyone agrees on it. And so, just to give you an idea, some some explanations would be: Oh, maybe the disciples stole the body. Another explanation would be, well, maybe there's mass hallucinations across 
different categories, and it was all very similar hallucinations. And then the explanation that we would give, and I think is the only one that stands the test, is that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. And so, um, yeah, we'll dive into that a little more next month. And Actually, then, over, we're, we're going to tie in the historical implications through di- several different parts that will all tie in on this. Because mm-hmm. we're going to talk about scripture, we're going to talk about God according to the Bible, and we're going to talk about like Jesus and the different attributes of God specifically as well. So we'll, we'll tie in more into detail on this, but those are some of the main points um, for that. Um, but yeah, let's, I guess we'll just wrap it up with prayer. Um, one thing that I found helpful from, again, from William Lane Craig is he always appeals to this idea that logic is helpful and it can help affirm our beliefs and all that sort of stuff. But what's essential, and I think as Christians, we would, I would say most of us as Christians came to believe in God through an experience with God and like actually encountering God in some aspect. And so as helpful as these arguments are, there's nothing more worthwhile than actually experiencing God. And to, to, we could build our faith based on our experience alone. There's no reason to, in the face of facts that might not make sense, to deny God if you've really experienced the Holy Spirit and you have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. It would actually be illogical to some extent to deny your own experience. And so we could dive more into that, but we don't really have time. So I'll just kind of have a quick example. Yeah. Okay. Let's say you have a friend that I've never met before. And that friend told you something. And I, I said, no, that that's not real. That can't be true. You couldn't have that friend and they couldn't have told you that. Well, it'd actually be illogical for you to agree with me, even though you've talked to that friend. It'd be illogical. You experienced that conversation. You experienced that person. So you have a warrant for believing what they said is true. And you don't have to agree with me who disagrees with you, even though I've never experienced that thing. I've never experienced that friend, but that doesn't mean I'm right. So that's, that's kind of the quick breakdown of that. Yeah, perfect. We can talk about it afterwards if you have more questions. Or so, um, God, thank you so much for the ways that you've created us, how we all have so many unique gifts. There's so much creativity that stems from you. There's also a lot of logic and order and structure to this universe that, again, stems from you. And I thank you that we can draw on all of these facets and really uh, dive into it in a way that's unique because of House Church and the structure that this is. And so I just pray, God, if there's any burning questions that uh, hopefully some of these would have been helpful. Um, If there's anything else that you would give us all the uh, confidence and the courage to start to wrestle through these things with a close friend or or even tonight and um yeah god just thank you again so much for how much you have done in a lot of our lives and how you uh have orchestrated all of this amen, amen. amen. all right